we have Kyle Matthews with us, the founder, chairman, and CEO of Matthews Real Estate Investment Services. 19 offices around the country with uh, his finger on the pulse of what deals are and are not getting done right now. And uh, here to uh, interview Kyle, a guy who obviously needs no introduction to this crowd, uh, my good friend, Nick Huber. Thanks for having me. I'm honored to be here. Um, it's 22 locations across the country. Well, we opened three offices in the last 10 minutes, so, <laughs> you know. I'm a, I'm a little nervous. Are you nervous? Yeah. Yeah, I'm nervous. Um, I had the opportunity to play a little football down the street at the Coliseum in college, and it was uh, way less nerve-wracking than sitting in front of 400 of the baddest real estate professionals. So bear with bear with me, bear with us. <laughs> well, I was, I was doing the pre-call with Kyle, and I said, um, do you have any Buck Mason clothing? Because that's what we need to wear. And I'm dressing however you dress. And he goes, no, I'm wearing a suit. Well, I, when Moses, Moses reached out and he's like, hey, it'd be great to have you come out and speak at this event. I was very honored. And it was a big conference. Again, you know, people spent a lot of money to be here. And uh, I was like, well, I got to dress professional. If I had known everyone was going to basically be in competition to dress as least successful as possible, <laughs> I would have not worn this. So again, no judgment. Well, here we are. We are the two people within about 20 square miles wearing suits. This is true. <laughs> this is true. All right. So, um, Kyle, your, your brother is a, a Hall of Fame linebacker. You grew up playing football, came out um, and, and started real estate uh, brokerage right before the great financial crisis, uh, right, down the, right here in Santa Monica. We'll start there. Yeah, um, my brother's not in the Hall of Fame yet. I think you got to be five years retired. I, I think he had a Hall of Fame career. Yeah, I hope so. <laughs> I hope so. It'll be a big, big party. But um, yeah, you know, I come from a big football family. That's no secret. That's uh, that's their success. That's them. I always say that's them. That's not me. That wasn't my path. Um, I'm their biggest fan, and it's been a blessing being a part of that. But that's not my life, and I wasn't going to let it dictate my life. And so I played at USC, but. Unfortunately, when you play safety behind Troy Polamalu, you very quickly realize that I would, I realized that I would have to find something else to do with my life because <laughs> um, I did not look like him. I did not run like him and I certainly did not hit like him. But um, <laughs> I, um, I very much wanted to be in real estate. I, I was focused in football. I did take my academics seriously, but I didn't have that real estate finance degree. I didn't know anyone in the business. And so I just got some advice as, uh, hey, you should look into brokerage. And at the time, this was uh, 2004, uh, the, the only company that would hire someone who, I had a will to work, but not a lot of skill, was uh, Marcus Amilichev. And I got hired in the Encino office and uh, very grateful for that opportunity. And um, yeah, my core market was high street retail on the west side of LA, which is effectively the worst thing the worst thing you could ever do because there's like very little velocity and it it created a very high barrier of entry and um i just spent my first you know, almost decade of my life cold calling all the owners on these these buildings and eventually i figured it out figured it out had a couple good years and then we entered one of the worst real estate recessions there is and i'm sure you you went from making good money to not making good money pretty quick yeah it, well I did, it did take me 17 months to close my first deal. For, so for those of you who are new to real estate, credit that you're here, you're doing the right things, but um, it's great to get a fast start, whether you're a principal, a broker, property management, debt side, but it, it's not necessary. You know, it, it, uh, 
It took me 17 months, and that was a testament to how bad I was, how little I knew. I'm not naturally a salesperson. I have tremendous social anxiety, to be honest. Um, and uh, But I just kept going, and I just kept getting better every day, slowly. But I did get better and finally closed a deal. And then about two years in, you know, started hitting my stride. And to your point, three years in, I had a good year, which in brokerage, you know, you're 26 making 300 grand, and you're like, man, I, I'm, I'm on top of the world. Like, look at me. And then... Uh, that was 07, and then 08, it got cut in half, and 09, half a half, and you know, it was 2009, and um, it was a really tough time, but I'm a simple-minded guy. I said, man, I'm making 100 grand a year in 2009. Like, I got the best job in the world, so I just, just kept my head down. I stayed. You'll hear me talk, whether it's today or in general, about just sticking to the fundamentals of, of, our, of my business of brokerage or being a principal, a developer, whatever it is, like just stick or recommit to the fundamentals and that's what I did and eventually it ended and I was one of the few who survived that period of time and uh, to the victor go the spoils. So 2015 rolls around and you bootstrap what is now the largest privately held commercial real estate brokerage in the country. 650 employees all through your capital. You have no investors. You are the leader and again bootstrap the entire thing. Talk us through uh, how and and I mean it's unbelievable. Yeah, thank you. Um, I uh, I had left Marcus. I was at Collier's out of the Beach City's office and and uh, to establish credibility in 2014. I was the number one agent globally and and so 20. I was it was great. It was great times. It was a great time to be in the market. Again, coming out of the GFC, liquidity came back, lending came back, yields were still high, debt was cheap. It, it was a great time and. And in 2015, to make a long story short, Collier's was going public and some of their policies and rules were switching. And, and my business, my background was retail, so shopping centers and net lease retail. And if you know anything about that from the brokerage side, you could trade assets all across the country. So I was very account driven. I would be awarded a portfolio of three properties from a Blackstone and one's in Ohio and one's in Georgia and one's in Texas. And, or I could trade a deal down the street. And, um, and they just said, hey, now that if you do a deal outside of Southern California, you got to oh, give uh, 40% of the fee to the local agent, whether they added value or not. And philosophically, that just didn't, didn't uh, it wasn't something I was going to be agreeable to. So I looked around the landscape, a lot of the bigger companies, um, they had similar policies, the smaller companies, I, I was like, man, I'm effectively running a boutique. I had three or four junior agents, I had a couple assistants. So I was like, look, I'll just start Matthews, right? Just let's call it that. That's simple. And uh, we'll see how it goes. And so basically, you couldn't find a shop that had the Nobody would take me. Yeah, no, uh, you were making too much money. You didn't want to give a lot of it up. You were a big yeah. time broker. You had a team, and you said, "Okay, it's time." Let's yeah, go. I did. I did not want to start a company, to be honest. And okay. I've been very candid about this. It was not an ambition of mine. There was no business plan. It happened in about thirty days, and I, I would have gone to a bigger company. But again, they had very similar policies, which. For 99% of agents who are very geographically focused, it makes sense, right? Why would you be, if you're a multifamily specialist in DFW, why would you try and trade a deal in Atlanta? You wouldn't. But retail, especially net lease, in many ways, it's almost like trading bonds, like you're selling paper, you're selling a 15-year net lease, investment-grade credit. So it's different. They didn't really get that at the time. I think since then, they've adjusted some of those policies. But um, And then the boutiques, I was like, I, again, I'm, I'm basically running that. So I started Matthews. All told, you know, it was right down the street. All told, there's probably 15 people, and um, and it was a very good exit with Collier. It was very amicable. We ran all our deals through there. That that was fine, and then it just it just took off. Like that first year, you know, hired 10 people, and you know they did pretty well. So the next year I hired 20, and they did well. And the next year I hired 40, and 
and you know, 80, and this what, year. What year did office number two? That was 2016, was okay. Orange County, 2017 was Dallas, and then it, it started expanding from there. So yeah, we have 22 offices, um, about 700 agents, and then 150 employees, uh, which we call the support platform that support the agents in their pursuits and execution of their business. Beautiful. So I don't want to fast forward, but I want to spend a lot of time here talking about what you're seeing out there, because this is, um, it's a difficult time. I mean, people approaching me throughout the, the conference, hey, Nick, what do you think of self-storage? And there's a list of 100 things I'm, I'm excited about, my kids, my family, the, the business. I, I'm still excited about real estate. At number 100, it's shaving without shaving cream. And then below that is self-storage. It's, it's insanely difficult right now. I can't imagine being in this position where I'm getting paid on transactions. I'm, I'm part of the machine that's fueling acquisitions. And we're working with all these companies that are trying to figure out who they're going to lay off where it's a scary time. I mean, you had a rip-roaring 2020, 2021 into 22. Um, what are you seeing out there right now as far as velocity um, compared to 2021 highs to today in, in the asset classes that you all specialize in? Yeah, I mean, it's very difficult. So velocity across the board on average, across all product types is down, depending on where you're looking, 60 to 65% from 12 months ago, not even... 2021. 12 so we're probably 80% down from 21. We are just starting to get into double down months. Like August just came out, it was down 60% from last year's August, and August of 22 was down 9% from 21. So we're just starting to get down into the double negatives, which we saw in the GFC. We did not see that in COVID because it, it basically stopped started. Yep. So yep. Um, it's difficult. Uh, some product types. I could tell you we're doing much better. We're, we're down in the high 20s, and I'd love to tell you we work harder than everyone else. I, I'm pretty confident we do. Um, we'll, get, we'll get to that. I yeah, okay. That. And so, but um, we also do smaller deals. Matthew's average deal size is $7 million. And so smaller product is much more liquid. Institutional is effectively pencils down right now. You're and talking institutional, 50 million plus. 50 million plus, and even the 10 to 50s, it is, it's down, you know, 75 to 90 percent. I mean, like just putting office aside, offices, you know, there is massive issues there. But even sub-institutional multifamilies down mid 70s, 75 to 80 percent, uh, you know. And so, if if that's what you're experiencing, you're not alone. This is this is happening across the board, and um, you know. Office is down the biggest, multi's next. Uh, retail is surprisingly doing okay. It's down in the 50s because the operations of retail are actually very good right now. The American consumer up until probably today has had money to blow at you know restaurants and, and retail properties. And um, just over the last 15 years, there's effectively been negative net new construction. Mm -hmm. More retail has been yep. taken offline than it's been constructed. And surprise, you know, the, the most resilient product is industrial. It's, you know, from a transaction velocity, it's down 30%. From a, from a value standpoint, it's down the least. And um, yeah, I mean, that's what we're seeing. Small deals are still liquid. You know, sub 5 million for us, those are, those are trading because it's all cash buyers. And it, what, what remaining vestige of the 1031 pool exists, it's, it's mostly in those, those smaller deals. And then anything north of 10 million is very, very challenging to trade. And in order to trade it, there is a massive, massive, cap rate increase that's required. And most owners, unless they absolutely have to, there's distress, like they're not gonna sell it. Okay, we talk about velocity and you were talking, we, we were talking yesterday, 3% annually 
3% um, of the product will trade annually in a, in a market like Santa Monica. You're working one of these hard markets where every year you have a couple thousand buildings on a couple city blocks and only 3% of them will trade in a year. Um, a good market, maybe Phoenix in some of these years in 2007 when you were working, uh, eight, nine? Like Phoenix was the best. It was, it was like 10 and a half. Okay, so we're working from three to 10 and a half in a normal yeah. year. What happened in 2020 and 2021 as far as what percentage of buildings transacted? Yeah, on average, I mean, uh, like a, most markets are going to be four to five percent. Yep. Again, you'll have a Phoenix outlier. New York and LA is always going to be on the lower end. Because again, it's just, it's, it's like the boardwalk. You never sell the boardwalk in Monopoly. Yep. Families and generational family investment, they look at Wilshire Boulevard, they look at Fifth Avenue as the boardwalk equivalent, using that analogy, and you just don't sell it. You okay, know, so this you, is pre-COVID, we're looking for Yeah, so, so velocity went up in tw late 20, in 2021, and really almost to the first quarter of 22, because most of those first quarter deals in 22 had their, their debt cost fixed, their LP cost fixed, their PREF returns, required returns fixed. Um, and, and markets generally, on average, went to somewhere between six to seven percent, which is great for brokerage, and it's great for buying deals, and it's great for selling deals because I mean values were crazy. It was just it was a great time. A lot of people made a lot of money. Capital was flowing everywhere. Yeah. We came to this same conference in 2021. A lot of similar faces, mm -hmm. and we were smiling. We were happy. Yeah. We were making a lot of money, thinking that mm -hmm. we were the best in the business. I was were very cocky. I'm still this is a not bit no? cocky. All right. But and and so. In relative terms, six, seven percent at the peak. Where are we? Well, I'll tell you. And, and, um, and I'm going to ask him to state a lot of facts. Year Don't to date, to year facts. to date, velocity in Southern Cal Los Angeles County multifamily is 0.9 percent. So tracking to one point nine percent. So 0.9 percent of the product has traded. So we're annualized. That's 1.2 percent. Like that is that it's it's terrible. It's okay. really bad. Before I ask you what these sellers are thinking, because I want to know that. Um, what geographies are standing out, extra slow, and, and are you just seeing something interesting happen because you have now have 22 offices in different markets? Yeah, I mean, Sunbelt states, like basically Arizona through Texas throughout the southeast. More, more transactions. More transactions, more transactions. I could tell you the biggest disconnect that's causing a drop in, in transactions and in investment sales is, is cost of capital. I mean, this is simple. It's when interest rates, your, your effective interest rate, not even speaking to your debt constant, when it goes up three to 400 basis points in 15 months, yields do not move that quick, even for sellers who truly have inherent motivation. And three quarters of the sellers don't need to sell, and they fix they fix debt in the late 2020s into 2021 at you know high twos to low fours depending on product type, and mm -hmm. it just it just takes time. Owners are always you know 12 to 15 months behind buyers, and that actually works to our benefit when rates drop and values go up. Like their owners are oftentimes late to recognize it. Buyers are real time because their their debt gets cheaper, they can pay more, but the price is still the same. But right now it's in reverse, and. Um, it's just, so, so there's, like, that's the biggest reason we have this massive loss in transaction opportunities, especially for you buyers. Um, but then on top of that, in certain markets, generally what I'll call highly regulated markets, you could guess Ma the what, major mar major cities? Los Angeles, San Francisco, New York being the ultimate example of this where there's like vacancy control. You yep. know, even if your unit comes vacant, they tell you you can only increase rent 5% even if it's vacant. And um, so regulation on top of this total disconnect in bid-ask gap, is the big bid-ask gap, it, 
it, it creates 0.9% uh, annualized velocity yeah. or 1.2% annualized velocity in Los Angeles. And, and a lot of people's businesses, of course mine, but a lot of people's businesses are built on the ability to buy and sell real estate. And not just principals and brokers, like you think about escrow companies or title yeah. companies or all the third party vendors that you hire when you go under contract to buy a deal, everyone on the in the lending community. So it's- There are millions, there are millions of people. Well, nobody feels sorry for us because like we're in commercial real estate, but um, you know, what I always say is like, perhaps we weren't as good as we thought we were in 21, but we're also not as bad as maybe we think we are in 23. It's yeah, probably the, somewhere in the middle. The bottom line is millions of people in America feed their families on the transaction of real estate. Um, you're one of those people, the people that work with you. What are you seeing from an asset um, performance perspective. You're getting a look and underwriting yeah. a lot of deals, looking at these asset classes. Yeah. Are they performing? Are you seeing a lot of stress? No, not, can we just like five seconds? Office, not good. Put it to the <laughs> side. All right, sorry if you want to talk more about office. Um, up until this point, and it is where we probably transition the conversation into the economy and where we see it going is, the operating fundamentals of commercial real, real estate thus far have been very, very good. Because the, the, the amount of money printed as a response to COVID and that money flowing into the economy and going to the American consumer and renter, it, it, whether it was multifamily, we saw massive rent growth, right? Or retail, the lowest vacancies and highest rent growth we've seen in two decades. Industrial, like, don't even get me started. Industrial the tenants are storage, yep. you know, um, the, the amount of residential uh, transaction velocity, speaking of which, in residential in late 2020 and 2021, the amount of people buying and selling homes, typically when you do that, you go out and you rent a storage, you rent a storage yeah, unit, you rent then a storage. you forget about it, and six years later, you're like, oh shit, uh, I gotta cancel that, you know? Um, that, that has, the operating fundamentals of real estate, as, as our agents and our analysts have been underwriting, have been fantastic. Just in like the last 90 days, we've started to see that turn. It started, again, office site. It really started in uh, multifamily in, in the Sun Belt, specifically rents, first rent concessions, then actual market rents where they execute. Because um, right now and over the next 12 months, we'll have the greatest amount of multifamily supply delivered in the last 40 years. And, and so that, whether it's Phoenix or even markets like Austin, I live in Nashville, like there's people, you know, what is it, 150 people move there a day. It's actually not keeping pace. We are seeing rent declines in Nashville. We are seeing rent declines in Austin. Uh, we are seeing it in Phoenix. And, and I think you're gonna see more of that. Um, I, we're, so, so multifamily, we're starting to see a slight degrading of the, op the fundamentals on the operations. So that's something to keep an eye on. Retail, again, to date is fantastic. Industrial is fantastic. Um, but as, especially on retail side, as what I believe is the American consumer is tapped out for, for multiple reasons we can get into, I think you're going to see consumer spending really start to decline here. And that, that's probably going to affect the commercial side more in addition to, to multifamily. Okay, so the fear kicks in when rents drop and rates are 7% a month ago and now they're 8%. I got a term sheet on a storage unit on a storage facility that's performing very well a week ago at 8.3% from a bank that we really like. Yeah. The rest of the banks are not returning our calls. Um, craziness. What are you seeing from uh, a cap rate perspective as far as where the transactions are happening in the last month in, in some of these asset classes? Yeah, I mean, look, the, the, the best of the best, the A property at the A corner will still trade. Yep. Um, in my opinion, uh, the multifamily at the, in the best market within a city even if there, you know, even if there's rent control or rent, 
There's regulations, like as long as there's some meat on the bone and there is some rent growth, uh, in addition, just inherent market rent growth. You know, highly regulated cities, the, the benefit is they tend not to be oversupplied, right? Like LA. So um, it's, uh, those will still trade against smaller deals, but we've seen cap rates move on the best product, roughly 75 basis points, on the worst product, 150 to 200. And, and that's from where to where in a multifamily? Yeah, a multifamily should, deal, should like I know I heard Moses say three and a half in LA, sure, like those might be four and a halfs today. Mm -hmm. um, and, uh, you know, a multifamily deal in a tertiary market that was a, a high five, low six, might be a mid seven now. But I, 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 they need, they're about halfway there. They need to move double what they have. Yeah, just the sellers, just, basically the buyers are not biting at these. Yeah, because if you're, if you're, even if a cap rate in LA moved from a four to a five, you're borrowing at six and a quarter, six and a half, six and three quarters, 25 year and maybe 30 if you're lucky. And that's, again, in, on the West Coast, there's not much agency. It's, it's mostly all bank lending, regional bank lending, but on the agency side, a little different. And, and that's a bank wants a, probably a minimum million dollar deposit relationship. And let's say you can make that happen. Your debt constant is in the mid sevens. If you are buying a five cap deal, even if there's value add, it, you, it doesn't pencil. There's almost no LTV, like 30% LTV. And then it effectively becomes an all cash deal, which is again, why smaller deals might make it, but you're not gonna buy a five. You know, you need that to be, probably six, six and a half, depending on the upside and how quickly you can get to it. So you can push that all in yield within 24 months to north of, of where you're borrowing at. If not, like, how are you making money? Yeah, let's talk about it from a banking perspective, what you're seeing in the loan market, because Matthews has a very active debt brokerage arm. Um, what, what are the regional banks that fuel a lot of the asset classes we work with? Is CMBS and agency still, active? Is it available? Are people biting? Why would they buy yeah, it? Yeah, CMBS has actually stepped up a little bit on our commercial product. Um, most debt, what debt that actually is getting done um, on the commercial side is five-year IO. It is effectively buyers and borrowers banking that interest rates, little to no prepay. Like they're, they're, They would take a higher interest rate today if they can get their prepay down because they believe, as do I, that in 24 months rate will be lower than they are today. Like how much so, that's kind of the gamble. Mm -hmm. But um, mostly five-year IO. And uh, again, if you're doing a deal with a bank, they're gonna want a deposit relationship. They're gonna want full recourse. They're even gonna ask for uh, cross-collateralize. Like, I mean, they have the leverage. Like, you know, yeah. not very many people are lending. Um, on the uh, on the commercial side, is is probably more life insurance right now, mm -hmm. and uh, they'll they'll do chunkier deals. But um, you know, interest rates are best case again. Agency in multifamily, maybe low sixes, but most of the interest rates we're seeing are high sixes. Most have a seven handle, and we are starting to see some eights. And again, this is I've been traveling the last five days, and I think in the last five days, treasuries have increased fifty basis points. So I. Uh, you know, higher than that. Are, just, are I, regional banks doing much? I mean, no, the, the, no. their deposits have gotten crushed because everybody's moving their crushed. money to treasuries. Uh, FDIC is coming in and saying, hey, like, you need, to, you need to audit these accounts. And some banks are just doing it because they're being told. Some are looking to, like, gotcha. Like, oh, you didn't send this in on time. We want you to pay down this principal by X amount. And they're just looking to get their money back so that they can stay in the good graces of the, of the, of the FDIC. But also go lend that money at 8% instead of the three and a half that your loan is at. So I would advise everyone to make sure you are following, you, you understand and you follow the covenants in your loan agreements very, very carefully. Now more than ever, again, I don't think most lenders are, are actively looking to prey on those, but don't even give them 
don't even give them a window to come back and say, well, you tripped this, and now we can look back 12 months. Oh, you actually tripped it a couple times, and so we want this pay down. You don't even want to give them that, so just make sure you're sending in your updated financials on time. This sounds like 2009. Banks want, like, we have loans maturing. Everybody in this audience has loans maturing in the next five years. A lot of people have loans that are floating and maturing in the next 12 months. A lot of people have loans that are maturing 2024, late 2024, early 2025. If these banks don't have the balance sheet to keep these loans, they are not going to extend them. They're not going to offer refis. We're, we're communicating with regional banks. But they also are not going to, they do not want to foreclose on these things. It's just the culture and the lending community. They, they, they would rather you just keep paying interest minimums or something. I was with the Fannie Mae, or yeah, Fannie Mae a couple weeks ago in Dallas and then had a special servicing for a lot of the special servicers. And again, they're like, look, we're going to take some loans back. They're going to be wrong. Like it's, it's not going to be 2009, and 2009 was not RTC days. So, so they're um, not trying to trip the loan covenants no, to take no. the loans. They're trying to trip the loan covenants uh, to they, raise they, the rates. I don't think they're. Yeah, generally they're not trying to. Some might, yep. but they'll try and do that if they actually think there's equity. The problem is, if we're talking distress, it's like, hey, there isn't equity in the deal. And so my conversations over the last 90 days, where a lot of my time has been spent on the distress. Is getting those conversations going, getting the BOVs going, mobilizing the six, seven hundred agents in the market, saying, "Hey, like they want us to look at these twenty assets, and they're just put on a little special, special asset list." That, you know, there's nothing yet. Is just um, in having those conversations, they're, they're not. I don't think they want to take their properties back. They just um, they would like to get out of them if they could. But um, mm -hmm. but you know, there's nine hundred billion of debt maturing next year. Uh, a lot of that was put on. Um, 10, 7, and 5-year debt between 20, 20, 2014, 2019, there should be pretty pretty good amounts of equity in that. Yep. Because if you look at the run-up from 2019, let's say a 5-year deal, to even 2020, late 2022 when, yeah, when you value got started 50% of revenue. You, your, your rents are up 50%, your value's up 50%. So even if it goes down 30, there's equity there, plus you know whatever pay down if, 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 if there's some amortization. So I'm not worried about this massive wave of distress. There will be some, and, and some of you may experience that. But, um, but yeah, it's just lending right now and finding someone who's committed to lending. That's the challenge. And if you have that relationship, lean into it. And yep. it, it definitely gives you a leg up in terms of buying assets. And if we had 6 or 7% two years in a row trade, from 2020 to 2021 or 2022, we have 15% of the market that is that bought at the top. Correct. And they're on two, three, four, five-year debt a lot of times. Yeah. A lot of it's on a lot of the, it's on long-term. The, 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 the issue we're seeing right now is just those that either it's new construction, it's bridge construction, and the construction, and, yep. and it's 24, 36 months, and them just refining out, and then there isn't the equity, so they're trying to capital call their LPs, and the LPs are like, no way. And so we're seeing a little bit of that. The, the biggest distress outside of office is probably Sunbelt multifamily where you banked on rent growth. You're going to put 10,000, you know, kind of lipstick the unit turns and we're going to get this massive rent growth. Because in those markets, you can usually get to it pretty fast. Yep. There isn't a lot of rent control. And the, the rents aren't showing up. Um, the reversion, the exit terminal cap rate where you could sell it is 150 basis points higher than you underwrote it. And they put on... IO adjustable debt. That that's where we're seeing it right now. And yeah, the float. It's not a ton. It's yeah. not a ton. Right now, the biggest challenge we're having is it just takes time for sellers to come to realization that what they could have got 12 or 24 months ago is no longer achievable. Let's do that. Let's now shift before we make predictions of the future, which I'm gonna, we're going to hold you uh, very strictly to when you make those. Predictions. I, I can predict the future. I just want you to know that. <laughs> I want to talk about the seller. Your agents are pounding the phones. Um, I, I, I've talked to a, a brilliant 
guy in, in, in uh, Austin McLeod there in Atlanta, he is still getting and moving deals in the under sub $7 million range. But like how, how are you training your staff to talk to these sellers and what are these conversations like right now to get them on board that, hey, I know you called me in 2021 and told me my property was worth $20 million. Why are you calling me now and telling me it's worth 12 or 14 or 15 or 16? Look, I, the key to brokerage, if I may, if there's one thing I think I know about real estate, it's brokerage and um, is, is asking questions and getting to open up as to what, why they own real estate, generally wealth creation, but there's different aspects. Are you a value add owner? Are you a passive owner? Are you a protectionist? Um, are you a gambler? And like understanding the different client profiles. And then if you can just get that out of an owner, if I met with each of you, most of you are probably value add. Um, but if I could just get that out, then I can look at the asset if they'd be willing to share the financials. And most are is like, and see if it it still aligns. Cause you'd be shocked at how many assets, especially the longer you, you've owned it, the product, the building or the asset no longer aligns with how you self-described it. Somebody's like, oh, I'm a value add owner. I buy assets and I increase value. And then you look at a building, you're like, well, you've turned every unit, every unit's at maximum market rent. If anything, you might have to mark the market a little ease. This is no longer a value add play. If I presented this deal to you today, would you buy it? The answer is unequivocally no. So then really the question is, are you a seller or are you uh, are you going to refinance and pull equity out? And because then the value add crowd does have shorter term. Yeah, unless, unless you're in just one of the crazy market where there's just massive rent growth that you can bank on. And even then, that's more of like a generational real estate investor. Uh, so so it's, it's coaching our agents. And so many of my agents, we hire out of college. We train in the Matthews way. We train them young. Guys and gals, 22 years old, they put them through Matthews University, our culture, like these 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 guys work, man. And 99% uh, of the people in your organization, you brought in homegrown. from the beginning. Yeah, built through the draft, yep. That's incredible. Yeah, and uh, <laughs> well, yeah, it's, uh, I have 700 children, yeah. You know? <laughs> and they're um, all calling you saying, dad. And I have four kids at home, yeah. All, it, all 700 of your children are calling well, you saying, dad, this is getting really hard. Yeah. Dad, this and, is really and, hard. <laughs> Man, How do I talk to these sellers? And everybody here, look, I'm in the acquisitions business. I spend the most energy in my company talking about acquisitions and how can we buy more property. These same, all the GPs here are doing the same thing you're doing. How are you talking to your team to get them through what's, uh, what's not just, fun? I, look, we talk about kids. So I got four kids, 12, 9, 6, and 2. And um, while my teammates at Matthews aren't, they're not kids. But like I, I'll use that as the analogy with my children. Let's focus on brushing teeth. Uh, I just figure every time I tell them to brush their teeth and I remind them how it, it's, it's a benefit to them and it, it will help them out in the long run, like they may remember like one ten thousandth of that. But if I say it 10,000 times, there will come a day where they go, oh yeah, I need to brush my teeth because it's good for me and it helps me. It helps me get to where I want to go in life. Um, metaphorically, using that to agents is we are just every day, multiple times a day, multiple times a week, multiple times a month, and multiple times a year, um, just messaging that you got to stick to the fundamentals. These types of markets will be the best thing that ever happened to you. The GFC was the best thing that ever happened to me. I didn't know it at the time, but it ultimately shook out all the fakes. It, it got it, all the posers, all the, 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 the wannabes who like thought that they could live this life, but they can't live this life because the second it gets hard, they quit and flame out and like get them out of the way. They're just a distraction. 
And then 2011, 12, 13 hit, and I'm one of the few agents in my market who was actually making calls and going on meetings and presenting proposals and providing information that was valuable to owners, even if it was like, hey, here's where the latest lease was signed, and by the way, it's 30% lower than what your rent is. Like, here's how I'd prepare for those conversations. Go to your tenants ahead of time, see if you get to 15 to 20% mark the market, like see if you can get them to do that. And then one day the transactions come back, but the brokers don't. And I remind them every day that Yes, it's hard now, but an extraordinary life requires extraordinary sacrifice. And real estate is the most entrepreneurial industry. And so my guess is most people, most of you, I speak for myself, I'll speak for you. We chose this because of, yeah, there's a lot to like, but there's tremendous wealth, generational wealth you can create. And uh, I know, you know, Moses was touching on maybe even having your kids, uh, you know, be involved in your business one day. That doesn't happen in traditional career. There's so much about real estate that you love, but you know, if if you want to live in the 1%, you got to work in the 1%. And so, no, you don't just get to show up and it's just good times forever. And if you can't deal with that, get the fuck out, man. Like, I don't know what to tell you. And I'm very candid with these young men and women. And I think what you'd be surprised, it's harder in LA than, you know, in the, in the flyover states. They're a little more receptive to this message. But, like, there's a tremendous desire to be just talked to, just be told the truth. Like, this is hard. That's why you signed up. If it was easy, everybody would do it. If everybody would do it, the market would become perfected and you, you couldn't create the wealth you could. And you should, while it's not fun to make less money, it's not fun to lose an asset, it's not fun to raise money saying, hey, I'm gonna hit 18% IRRs and then best case scenario, you, you're, you're just barely hitting pref and you may no promote, but if you can just hang in there and keep sticking to fundamentals, whatever that is for your, your your profession, if you're an owner, keep reviewing every OM, keep meeting with every agent. If you're a broker, keep making the calls and presenting information that's valuable. The sun comes out, it always does. I'll tell you, I lived in LA and I moved to Nashville in 2019. I bought 50 acres just outside the city. And I'm not a farmer, but I drive by farms on the way into the city. And you learn a lot driving by farms. And what I, one of the biggest things I learned that I was like, wow, it's a lot like real estate is that the most important work is done in the winter. When the weather sucks, it's dark, it's cold, nobody wants to be outside, that's when they're tilling the ground, that's when they're de-weeding, that's when they're fertilizing, that's when they're rowing. It's, you know, it's January, it's February, it's March, and nothing's growing, nothing can grow yet, but you're getting ready for the growth. And then, you know, they put the seeds in, I don't know, I'm not a farmer, they put the seeds in, sometimes it's corn, sometimes it's sprouts, I think you gotta alternate. Um, and then when the sun comes, when the rain comes and the sun, it just grows. Yeah, you got to tend to it, but it just grows. And it grows because of what you did when, when the weather was bad. And your business will grow because of what you do today. It's, you know, it's winter right now in commercial real estate, but that's okay. And the fact that you guys are here and that you spent the time and the money tells me that you're almost all you, all you are very committed. There's a lot of people who thought about coming who didn't come. They're like, ah, oh, that's inconvenient. That's expensive. I don't want to do that. Am I going to meet someone? Am I going to learn something? Those will be the ones who will be gone in the next 18 months. And you should wish them well, but just get them out of here. The quicker they get out, the less noise there's, less distraction, and the quicker we can get back to doing deals. Wow. Okay, so. Did I answer your question? Uh, I want to cry and smile and run through a brick wall all at the same time. No, I, I, look, I, I was talking to my, I have a really good acquisitions guy on my team, and frankly, a lot of my energy right now is motivating my acquisitions people, trying to get them not to quit. <laughs> That's what I spend a lot of my time doing. 
And he, call, he called me, and we were chatting, doing our, our chat, and I was like, you know, Wes, when we were talking, and we were on the phone in 2021, and in 2022, you're like, these owners were yelling at me, saying, I get these calls every day. I'm getting called every day. Austin McLeod is calling me. Nathan Coe from Marcus and Millichap is calling me. All the other sellers and buyers who follow Nick, some, some guy on Twitter who tweets about storage, they're all calling. He called me the other day and said, like, I actually haven't heard that in a month. And then well, we The just, Matthews guys are still calling, right? <laughs> I think Austin's playing golf. No. Um, and then Matt, back there, Matthew said, you know, that some of these brokerage shops, like, are they going to start laying off their they, brokerage? They started last September. Oh, my gosh. Okay, so inside your industry, if we're looking at from an acquisitions lens, the, the survival of the fittest is already on, it seems. It's been on for 12 months. Anything to add there? I mean, this is... Yeah, I mean, look, if you look at the public companies, um, their cash positions are uh, almost across the board down 50% in my space. I mean, they have to... Big I, public brokerages. Yeah, CB, uh, JLL, um, Newmark is getting crushed. Cushman's down. They have a lot of debt. They have a lot of issues. Um, you know, Walker just had a big round of layoffs. Um, and the smaller firms may not be able smaller to survive. Smaller firms, are, they're done. They're, 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 they're going struggling. to fold. Yeah, they're, they're struggling. They, what happened is when you, it takes tremendous discipline when you have any company, when times are good, to not sweep the cash, right? And so in a 2021, every company, every brokerage company, on every service company, every owner made a lot of money. And then you're like, well, I'm really good. And go buy a boat. Let's go buy a boat, right? Let's buy, you know, or let's go buy more real estate, but like stay highly levered because the values are going to keep going up and the rents or brokers just go buy a bunch of agents and hand out signing bonuses because like they're going to hit these earnouts, it's going to keep going up. So the smaller companies, most owner operators oftentimes are still brokering. They just swept the cash and, you know, maybe they bought some real estate, maybe they bought a boat, you know, who knows, but um, there's tremendous, tremendous distress on the boutique brokerage side. And, and Moses, Moses, we made a joke that Moses said that you had 19 offices when you really have 22, but you actually have opened three offices in the last quarter. Yep. How? How are you well, growing? We're, we're self-funded. We have no debt. We have no investors. Um, I saved a tremendous, tremendous amount of cash uh, from, and that's just my personality. I carry a lot of like Latin anxiety about the market. I think that's, you, you go through the GFC and you carry those scars, like you, you know how bad it can get. And so not that everybody remembers that lesson, I certainly did. And so I just said, look, it could get really bad. I don't, it's not that, just to be clear, this market is not that market. That market was something totally different. Uh, this is just a, uh, a painful velocity recession driven by rapid rate increases, right? And um, it, I just felt like something like this could happen and I wanted to stay on offense and uh, that's one of our principles. We're always on offense, and we are still on offense. We had a big announcement yesterday in New York. We had about 10 agents just call us up. Their company was falling apart. They said, we want to walk you through your door. We met with them. We figured it was a perfect fit in terms of market. It was a market, you know, we weren't, we didn't have redundancy or overlap, and culturally a great fit, hardworking men and women who want to grow in their business and take what they do seriously. And we have we just we just had a guy join in DC. We had someone we had a big team in industrial in San Diego. I mean it's it's wild. It's wild. It's part of the reason I think you wanted is like part of the reason I even got on social media twelve months ago was just to increase like effectively my role now as brand ambassador is it is to accelerate the brand's arrival in markets before we physically get there. And so that's been a, a blessing. I've never had social media in my life and frankly I, it, it makes me uncomfortable, but you know, I gotta do it. <laughs> Me too. It makes me very uncomfortable. Yeah, right. <laughs> no, I think, I mean, 
this is, this is incredible. I hope that everybody here just heard what he very humbly said. Business was better than ever for 10 years. And then all of a sudden it was double better for two years. And everybody got greedy. Everybody swept, swept cash. You stayed disciplined and now you're growing through the pain in, uh, in an unbelievably difficult market. You're gonna build an empire over the next 10 years. Yeah, I've been, uh, I hope so. Well, I, <laughs> I, I know you are, but let's talk, let's make some predictions. We have a couple minutes left. What do you think is going to happen? In our, in our pre-call, you said something unbelievable. And you said that you could see decent product in LA at a what cap rate trade in 18 to 24 months or less? I think it'll be in mid sixes with some value add component. Yeah, I, I um, while what I shared with you, it may sound pessimistic in terms of the market today. If nothing else, I want to leave this audience with tremendous optimism that markets like this, as frustrating, as painful as they are, this will be the best thing that ever happened to you if you Stay the course and you don't quit. If you just keep doing what you're supposed to be doing, and I don't know if it's gonna be 12 months or 24, I don't think it's gonna be 36, but I promise you, over the next 10 years, you will buy more real estate, you will make more money, you will build a bigger organization, and ultimately, however you define success, you will have greater success because of this fucking shit market we're in today, all right? So, you should leave her optimistic about the long term while addressing the realities on the ground that we have to face today. And you gotta make good decision and make good pivots where you, where you should. But uh, where I am a pessimist is I am a pessimist on the broader economy. I am not at all a subscriber to a soft landing. And this is just an opinion and half this room could argue with this. I believe the American consumer is exhausted and tapped out. Um, excess COVID savings, uh, Federal Reserve um, of San Francisco came out with a report that was seconded by JP Morgan and then I think Citi that there was 2.1 trillion of excess COVID savings in terms of like bank accounts and savings accounts. 2.1 trillion that peaked in August of 21. And every month it's effectively been drawn down about 85 billion a month. And they had, they, they had this, they did this, they looked at it to the end of the first quarter this year, there's about 500 million left, and they said, based on this current rate, it will be totally gone um, by third quarter, which is effectively today. And so- Okay, take us six months into the future. Excess, excess COVID savings gone. Student debt pay, payments starting in October. Highest rates of credit card and auto default debts since, you know, I think credit card in the last 30 years, auto since pre-GFC. Like there are all of these markers that people financially are gonna struggle to keep spending and the American economy is consumer spending driven. I think you're gonna see a massive pullback on spending and that will affect the GDP and it will ultimately, I think first, second quarter next year, you will start to see negative GDPs, you'll start to see the Fed pivot. And, um, and again, when there's a broader slowdown, not just in the US economy, as the, as the US goes, the world goes, there is a flight to treasuries. There is a flight to safety with the US, you know, say what you will about, the state of the, this country, I'm a big believer in the United States, like it's still the safest uh, in terms of investments, most stable system laws and United States debt at five and a half percent right now or 4.65 for a 10 year, like that, that's attractive. So then you're gonna have demand for treasuries really step up and that in theory and historically will drive treasury yields down, which will help the cost of capital um, for us in terms of our refinances, our purchase, our, our acquisition loans. The only but to that is it's interesting because the U.S. has to issue so many treasuries right now to service its debt load. So we're going to see a little push-pull there. But uh, yeah, I, I think your question was predictions. I 
personally predict the economy will slow down significantly. I do not see a soft landing. Um, I don't think it's going to be terrible. I think it's just going to be like, you know, traditional recession. You'll see some unemployment go up. You're already seeing Jolt's report peaked at, in June of 21, I think at 11 and a half million open jobs. It's already down to the eights and it's falling fast, which gives, which puts, uh, which comp very much suppresses wage inflation pressure. It brings it down, which is ultimately the biggest driver of inflation. So I think you're going to see that go down. Um, obviously, gas is a problem in food, but uh, yeah, I think cost of capital will go down. Um, cap rates will still rise. The market will slowly get back into equilibrium in the second half of next year. Again, it's not going to unlock and be this flood, but by 25, stay alive till 25, right? Um, you'll start to see a normal market. Yep. And so, you know, I think debt will start to get cheaper. What I would keep an eye on is just, again, the operating fundamentals of your, of your asset class, which is 100% supply and demand driven. I came up raising money. Um, I came up. Two years ago, I was raising money to buy a bunch of storage, and me and my friends would sit around and say, you know, there's nowhere for capital to find yield. And I have it. We can buy real estate. Everybody in this room, we had yield. We could go out and raise money. Um, it was easy to raise capital. Is it fair to say that now and in, into the future, over the next year, the folks who can raise capital will be the ones who can buy assets and continue to grow? Yes. Um Look, anytime you have access to capital when no one else does, you're going to do very well. I mean, that was the story of who bought in 2010, 2011. I mean, no matter what you bought, you're going to, what you purchase is going to work out well. So, yeah, if you have access to capital, I think how this one's different is there is a lot of dry powder out there. It's just where they're underwriting to, like their prefs and their, you know, where they want to see IRRs. Just investors like yourself are looking at it, like, I can't deliver that. I'm just setting myself up to have a negative experience and, not make much money, maybe a little fee business, but um, but eventually those yields will catch up to where their expectations are. And yeah, if you can, if you have money, you know, in the next nine to eighteen months, uh, I, it, in my opinion, values will fall, and subsequently yields will rise. Yields will rise, values fall, and uh, the you'll be able to buy some pretty good deals here in the you know into twenty four and twenty five. It's amazing. Um, one question before, I'm going to totally flip the script, uh, flip the script on you. Um, you're an extremely prof uh, successful business entrepreneur. Many of us here operate at a very high level. We're very motivated to drive wealth, um, build something special for our families. Speaking of families, you have four kids. I have three kids. Many people here have kids very recently. How do you think about balancing the drive to work, the drive to produce, the drive to grow, the drive to build an empire? and the drive to raise great kids? And how are you, what advice do you have for me, maybe? I'm several years behind you to, to, to keep it all in perspective and raise good, good kids. I, you know, I, I, I'll answer your question. I don't have the answers. I mean, I'll let you know in 20 years if I did a good job. <laughs> um, it's very difficult, you know, it's, um, you know, there's, there's two voices on either side of your shoulder every day and they're telling you conflicting things and, so I guess, you know, it's, um, for me, it's just been, it's not sacrificing work and not sacrificing time with my children. And so effectively that means I sacrifice everything else. So I don't, I don't play golf. I don't, I don't do fucking boys trips and shit like that. Like I just, I work and I dad and I dad and I work and in between I keep my number one client happy, my wife. So I always make sure we do dinner, you know, date night and I tell people 99.9% .9 of my time is pre-committed between work and my family. 
and I enjoy those things. I don't enjoy every moment, like when my you know two year old is up at three thirty screaming. Like I don't enjoy that, but um, that's part of the gig. Like nobody forced me to have kids, man. You know, and uh, I coach other sports as much as I can coach. My my oldest is twelve; he's starting to get in. But I I coach their seventh grade football team, and today is their last game, and I'm here with you guys. Um, so that was really hard, and uh, hmm. um, so. It's you do the best you can. Uh, historically, I sacrificed working out. Uh, I just got back into that in the last two years, just to you know, because I'm 41, but like I feel like I'm getting old. And um, you know, there will be time to you know ex discover myself, right? I hope. Uh, right now, <laughs> whatever the young kids say. Um, that's what I said. I, I said like you know, you talk about work-life balance in your 20s, you'd be worried about balancing your finances in your 60s and like I I always say I say choose your hard life and I said no matter what you're gonna have a hard life and again this is relative we're in real estate in the United States of America for goodness sakes but either you you in your 20s and 30s you work like a maniac and then if you choose to have children what you cut down on the work but it's straight to kids and anything in between again you're not doing thirsty Thursdays and like 5 p.m. pure bar class like you're just People look at what I chose to do in my life, I'm like, oh my God, that's so hard. And I go, well, you know, I'm 40, I don't need to work. I can, I spend a lot of time with my children. I coach all their sports. I am a more present father at their practices and games than any other father. I know that for a fact, period. Um, and I look at a large, ever-growing ever segment of the country where it's espousing work-life balance in their 20s. And I say, you're gonna have to tell your kids, sorry, I can't come to your game in 20, you know, in 20 years if, you, if you're blessed to have children because I have to work. And that to me is a harder life than what I chose to do. So I said, you're gonna have a hard life, choose your hard life. For me, front-loading my career, front-loading my business, front-loading my wealth creation was less hard than having to tell my kid I can't make your game because uh, boss said I have to stay late today. So I don't know, you know, I, I'm a simple-minded guy, you know, it just, this is how it presented itself to me. And I was like, well, I'm just gonna go this way. I'm just gonna work my ass off before I have commitments. And then when I, when I, my wife and I chose and we were blessed to have children, yes, I, I don't work as many hours at the office. Now I still work a lot, but that sacrifice other things. And it's the greatest sacrifice I ever make, man. You know, it's like, I don't think anyone's ever late in life said, man, I regret spending so much time with my children, right? It's always the other. So I don't know, choose your hard life. Uh, front load as much as you can, and when you have children, you know, make sacrifice elsewhere. Some of it's in work, but if you're building a business, then you might not be able to sacrifice a lot of time at work. It's sacrifice hobbies, sacrifice whatever else people do. I don't know. I don't know what people do. Well, we know how much you value your time, and um, I took so much away from this. We got a, a lesson in what to expect out on the market, and we got some great perspective there at the end. Kyle, we are so thankful and honored that you chose to be here with us today to, to share the message. Thank you. Thank you.